Happy Tuesday, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, I figured it would be fun for us to dive into a case study on the very first project that I ever did. It was a, about a 6,000-square-foot office building about 15 minutes north of Nashville. I'm going to show you uh, how I found it. We'll talk about the whole story. Um, I actually bought this back in 2019, uh, and we're set to sell it in the next 30 days. So I figured this would be a fun uh, little breakdown to do. But uh, how I found it, how I raised capital for it, how uh, we renovated the property and how we leased it up because I bought it fully vacant. And we'll talk about everything in between. And so since Andy was actually not a part of this, I figured it would be very appropriate to have him come in and ask questions uh, so that he and I can kind of have a conversation about it um, and talk about going through the process of doing what was supposed to be a, a burr strategy, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and then repeat. I was going to hold this, uh, but then I got an offer to, to sell it, so we decided to take that route. So uh, let's, uh, let's dive on in. The, the property was up in uh, Old Hickory. Let me share the screen here with you. This is actually the listing page that we put together. So, so the Cobble Group obviously represented uh, the building. The Cobble Group represents all my buildings uh, for lease. And so this was the marketing that we put together for it. So this is the latest iteration. This page is now down. Um, you can't find it because it's fully leased. So we didn't need it up anymore. Uh, it's uh, up in Old Hickory Village, which was actually, I'll show you here in a second um, where, it's, where it's located. About 15 minutes north of downtown Nashville again. Uh, zoning was commercial services. It had a pretty large parking lot, which was pretty attractive to me. Um, you could see we went through, we did a little video here, put together a floor plan. So the leasing plan only shows the basement. There's actually a main level and then a basement. They're two separate tenants. Um, since we had leased the main level, this, this page was obviously just intended to get that basement leased. Uh, some photos there. Uh, we actually do a 3D tour on all of our properties. We've been doing that for a while. I think that it's, it's very important uh, when you're going through that process. So let's talk about Old Hickory Village. Old Hickory Village is, like I said, about 15 minutes north of Nashville. What I like about it is it's, it's this nice little pocket uh, just outside of uh, really the, the hustle and bustle of everything. So this intersection here is one of the like, biggest intersections north of downtown. And then right over here, this is also another one of the biggest intersections north, uh, east of downtown. So you're sitting right on Old Hickory Boulevard, which is one of the biggest roads to go through Nashville. It kind of used to be the highway uh, back way back in the day. But it's this neat little, uh, you can see it's actually laid out like a grid. So there's a factory right here that used to be the old DuPont factory. And it was, it was commissioned back in the early 1900s to provide gunpowder for uh, World War One, by the time that it was finished, the war was over. Um, so obviously, they never went into munitions manufacturing, but they developed this town around it. So all of the bigger houses are, of course, along the river with the riverfront views, and then they created this little village right here. Um, so you can see there's Burger and Company. We actually put them in that space. Uh, there's a post office right across the street. There's a community center right here, and we're located right on the corner. So while it is a bit of a pocket, I liked the, fa I liked the fact that it was a pocket. You know, a lot of people will not invest in commercial property that is not along a major thoroughfare. Um, I did not have a problem with that because 
this neighborhood, just the, the way that it's gridded and laid out is actually very walkable, which I found very attractive. And it had this little commercial core that serves that whole neighborhood. So if you guys have been watching the show for any, for any amount of time, you know that we talk about neighborhood retail, neighborhood commercial all the time, because that is a very COVID proof, relatively COVID proof um, type of commercial real estate. And it makes a great investment. So let's see here. Actually, Andy has a, uh, Andy put together a little slide deck for us. Let's look at this. So starting off, um, yeah, that's me sitting on the, um, in the, so it used to be a bank actually, but, uh, this, this property, uh, what's really unique about this investment is that I bought it when I was 25 or 26, uh, 26, and I had no money. I had just started my own company about a year before, and I was just trying to save up and didn't know how I was going to start investing in commercial real estate yet, but we found a way and I'm going to show you how we did that. So this actually used to be a bank. This is where the, the tellers were. So that was actually the drive-through window. Uh, there's a mezzanine up here. Let me see if I can show you that as well. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. There's this mural in Old Hickory that I thought was pretty cool. So, of course, we had to take a little Instagram moment. Thanks for <laughs> throwing that in there, Andy. Um, welcome, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, so this is the property right here. It's basically along this wall and then around this little roundabout. It's kind of a kind of a funky little layout. You can see it's almost a rounded triangle. Uh, it's a really cool design. The, the same architect that designed the Batman building in Nashville actually designed this property, which was very attractive to me because it's kind of a, a, a piece of Nashville history. Uh, I thought that was really neat. Tons of parking. Perfect for a drive through. Um, so I actually found this property uh, through a client of the Cobble Group. So we were representing a buyer who brought this to our attention because I didn't really pay, pay much attention to Old Hickory Village. Uh, I actually did not know anything about it when I first started investing there. I mean, if you look at it, uh, again, it's kind of in this, this niche spot of Nashville. It's a, it's a great spot because you're right on the river. You've got this, this great accessibility for being you know, in, in suburbia. But I was really focused on East Nashville. I never really ventured very far outside of this little circle. But it only takes about 10, maybe 12 minutes to get there. Uh, so I, I found that, that that pretty attractive. Well, this client um, brought it to us. They wanted to buy it to owner-occupy it. They were, they were going to move their company, um, a tech company, into the space. And uh, so they, we put it under contract. We negotiated it down. I think that they were asking like 750, and I think we negotiated it down to 575, and they accepted. So uh, we put it under contract and started doing our due diligence. And I started working in Old Hickory Village and kind of, you know, getting to know the building, getting to know the neighborhood, getting to know the property, and uh, I kind of fell in love with what was going on out there. It was really interesting. I mean, you know, like I said, it's very walkable. It's it's it seems like an up and coming neighborhood. And I liked the energy um, and everything that was going on there. So we, uh, we got about two or three months into our due diligence. And, and keep in mind, too, right, like a $575,000 deal, that's no small deal uh, for a broker. So when my client called me and said, hey, we can't get the funding, we've got to terminate the contract, I was devastated. I was like, man, I, I, get, give me a week. Let me try and figure out how to, uh, to salvage this deal. So... 
I ended up calling another one of my clients that was actively looking to buy commercial real estate and told him about it, pitched him on why I like the neighborhood. And he said, yeah, assign it to me. Let's do it. Let's go buy this property. So he, he gets assigned the contract. He starts doing his due diligence and he also cannot get his financing together. Not because of the property. They both had separate issues with their financing. So I'm looking at this going, all right, I love this site. It makes a lot of sense uh, to me as an investment, and I can make the numbers work. Why don't you just assign it to me? So I actually took that leap of faith. I was scared out of my mind, uh, but I didn't have anything at risk, right? Like the first client put down the escrow money, so uh, I didn't have to come out of pocket for anything. They had both already done inspections on it, so I already knew like you know what we we're getting ourselves into. Um, so they assigned me the contract, and I started working on it. Extended it with the sellers, of course. Had to had to go back and renegotiate some time so that I had enough time to go put my, you know get my ducks in a row. And uh, went and approached two investors that I had known for quite some time that had known me for quite some time in the business and just said, Hey, look, I've got this property up in old Hickory village. And, you know, this is my first investment, but you know, here's what I want to do with it. And here's why. And they, I asked them both for $50,000 each and they both said yes. So, you know, I I thought that that was, that was a pretty big deal, right? Because um, I had never raised money at that point. I had never had any investors. I had never done anything like that. But here, here, these two guys are saying, yes, we believe in you. Here's $50,000. That was a big deal for me. And that's really what got me started because I hadn't been investing. I had developed a 42 unit townhome development with another, uh, I partnered with another developer. Um, But I hadn't gone out and actually invested and anything on my own. So that's how I ended up pulling off the deal. I, I wound up, I, I still got a 3% commission on the project, right? Because I'm, since I have my real estate license, I was getting paid a commission anyway. Uh, I ended up rolling my 3% commission into the deal uh, at closing. And that was my equity buy-in. I ended up taking an additional 10% in the project because uh, I put the deal together and I was going to be the one running it. And then my brokerage handled the leasing and my property management company handled the management. And so because of that, I had some other ways to make some money off of the deal, uh, which was great. Uh, but that, that's, that's how I bought my first commercial real estate investment with no money out of pocket, technically. Uh, now, of course, still had to pay taxes on the, on the $20,000 or whatever it was. Uh, but very, very much so worth it. Tyler, I, I want to ask you if you would take us back actually to that moment in time when you were sitting there, you had these two contracts that you were working through. First investor group fell through. Second investor group fell through. You know, And you hadn't been actually doing development yourself, investing yourself. You had worked on that one 42-unit townhome deal as you talked about. But you never really, at that point in your life, you weren't thinking about, hey, what should I look out for investments for myself? And I think you know, that might be a point at a lot of people watching today might be at is trying to see 
you know, when do I decide to start getting into investments for myself? How do I take this step? How do I take this leap? And so what was kind of your, and you said, you know, it was a big deal for you to be able to get that money. And it was a little bit scary even to the fact that people would trust you. What made you decide to say, I want to do more than just brokerage? And did you have any sort of long-term goals? Did you have you know, any discussion with a mentor who said maybe you should be focusing on investment? Because obviously now, as I'm working for you and we're working together to run a very, we think, successful investment development company, right? And so it's pretty night and day almost from where you were just two or three years ago. Yeah, um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. No, I, so here's kind of where I was when, like mentally, when that happened. So take you back to, to 2019 in Nashville. Um, everybody was talking about how we were at the top of the market, that we were sitting in a bubble and it was about to burst. And I, I agreed. I, I was kind of scared. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to save my money. Um, we'll sit around and wait, and and hopefully an opportunity will come up where I can buy and start investing um, when the when the when the downturn hits, right? Well, it was late spring, uh, or maybe it was spring sometime or summer when the Ernst and Young announcement came in, and Alliance Bernstein came in. You know, those were two huge announcements coming to Nashville. I think Ernst and Young brought like 600 jobs. And Alliance was, was somewhere around 1500 which those are two big deals. That's a big deal for Nashville. Well, then Amazon comes out and announces 5,000 jobs, like within a couple of months of this. And so all of a sudden, it becomes another feeding frenzy in Nashville. Everybody's trying to buy up everything because they know over the next five years, these companies are going to be moving all of these very high. I think the average pay at Alliance Bernstein was like six figures. So they knew that, you know, all these high paid employees are going to be coming in and Nashville is going to continue to take off. So, um, you know, th that's when I kind of got the confidence of, OK, well, let's you know, if something comes up, we'll see what we can do. But again, I didn't have any money. Right. So I didn't I didn't know what I was going to be able to do um, until I thought through. Well, oh, yeah, I get paid a three percent commission. Maybe I can just find some guys and, you know, three percent of a 20 percent, you know, that three percent commission. Uh, bear with me because I know this is going to be a lot of math. A 3% commission becomes <clears throat> becomes 15% equity in a project if you're putting 20% down. And 15% equity is nothing to shy away from. I mean, I'll gladly go find investors to take up the rest of the 85% because that, you know, you build wealth through equity. You don't build wealth in transactions. Right. Like that $18,000, I would have spent it. Right. <clears throat> and I'd probably have nothing better to show for it now. But instead, I've got a bunch of equity built up into this property. So, you know, my grandfather actually owned a real estate, uh, most all almost all residential growing up. So I knew uh, what that was like. I had been studying real estate for four and a half years, uh, listening to podcasts, reading books, trying to figure out. I always thought that, <clears throat> excuse me. I always thought that there would be one more podcast that I would listen to and I would finally understand how to do it. I always thought there would be one more book that I would read and I would finally understand how to do it. I'd have one more conversation with somebody over coffee and I'd understand how to do it. And 
it, it became this this feedback loop where it's just like, oh, well, if I just consume one more piece of, of content, then I'll understand it. And honestly, I wish I had done it sooner. If I had just taken the leap and done it sooner, then because the, that year I bought my first office building and then I bought three more. I found a way to buy three more buildings that year. So I went from zero to four, which was a portfolio of, I want to say like four or five million dollars in one year all because I bought one property. So, uh, Andy, I think that's a great question. I mean, I, I would say I, I wish I had done it sooner. Get out there and actually um, take the chance. You know, one thing that I say now is, look, it doesn't matter if you break even or even lose a little bit of money on your first deal. The fact that you've gone through it and you've done it and you've signed those closing papers and you've put your name on the on the loan as the guarantor and you actually have to walk in there and think, okay, well, whether we have a tenant in this property or not, I'm paying the mortgage next month. It, it just changes your mindset on how you look at property. Yeah, you have that emotion built in and connection there. And you, even as a broker, right? Even as a broker, you are representing these investors. You know how much a deal is valued, what it should be worth, how much people, how much money people can make. You knew that on a conceptual level, but it wasn't until you took the step and put your name on that piece of paper, on that deed, that it really became real for you, right? And this is something that you and I talked about before when we discussed, you know, getting started in commercial real estate investing for myself, right? Yep. Taking that first step, taking that first step is always going to be transformational because until you have your own name and your emotions on the line, it's going to be all hypothetical in your head. And, you know, Tyler, I'm sure, and we'll discuss, you know, all the problems that you may have had in this property yeah. coming up here, right? Every time that something happened, you'd be kept up at night or had a stressful day and it would just, you couldn't think about anything else. You know, th those are the, the lessons and real value you get from investing in your first deal. And I want it to be, clear for everyone else out here too you know if you're scared about investing in your first deal you should be you know tyler <laughs> was a commercial real estate broker you know probably one of the more knowledgeable people out there who could ever be investing in a property and it's still kind of scary right uh that's a natural feeling but just just because you know you feel a little bit scared doesn't mean that it's not going to ultimately end up being successful for you and really valuable in the long run. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great point, Andy. Look, I, I had been in commercial real estate for five years, five years. I owned my own commercial real estate brokerage. I owned my own commercial property management company, and it still scared the hell out of me, right? Like buying that first property, it's just, it's different, right? It just, it just changes things. You, you don't really appreciate that. I mean, that's why I say, look, if you're if you're going to be buying commercial property, you got to work with a broker that's actually invested before because they they approach it differently. They look at things totally differently than somebody that's never signed on the dot, um, you know, which they could change how you approach a property. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny. That you, you brought up the not sleeping at night when I the first like four or five buildings that I purchased. Um, and actually it still happened, uh, this past time when we acquired the provision area on Dickerson Pike, uh, the, the few nights before closing, I couldn't sleep. 
I would like, you know, couldn't go to bed until like midnight. I'd wake up fully awake at three in the morning and I'd just get up and go on, on walks. Cause like, there's nothing else I could do because it is a big deal. I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're going to be signing over your own name, right? Like if I was just putting all of my cash into something, cool, whatever, I'll make it back. It's not that big of a deal. Um, if I lose it all, right. But I'm taking on investor capital. And that means that I now have a responsibility to, to the people who are trusting me with their money. And that's what scares me more than anything, right? It's just, or not necessarily scares me. It's just, it's, that's what makes me make sure that I'm absolutely on top of my game. Because the last thing you ever want to do is be irresponsible with somebody else's hard-earned money. So, um, yeah, when we, uh, after we acquired this building, uh, it, it was actually in relatively good shape. As you can see in these photos, I mean, they had gone through and, and repainted the exterior. Let me see if there's an interior photo of the upstairs. So this was the lobby. And I know this is kind of trippy, but there's a break right here. So there's not actually two mezzanines. There's just one. Um, the entrance is over to the side, uh, to the left side on this, uh, on the left-hand photo. You can actually see on that left-hand photo the safe in the back. Um, so this building used to be the bank for Old Hickory Village. Um, I don't know if you can really tell too much on the right-hand picture, uh, but that window right there is about two feet thick. They designed this building so that you couldn't drive a truck through it. In fact, in the front uh, where there's a glass storefront, there's a brick wall about four to five feet to 10 feet plus uh, that's built all out in front of it. So again, so that you couldn't drive a truck into it. I mean, talk about like old school, you know, bank robbery protection. Um, I mean, the walls are super thick, which I loved, right? Because the building is built like a brick house. I mean, it is not going anywhere. And that actually helps with insulation, which is nice. Um, but you've got these great, beautiful vaulted ceilings. You've got this mezzanine that overlooks the lobby. And I, I just saw so much potential with what we could do in here. And it didn't need a whole lot of work, or at least so we thought. I'll tell you what, we had, what happened after we closed on it. But, um, you know, I am big on, on bringing the neighborhood in on my deals, especially when you're doing a neighborhood commercial deal, right? Because the beautiful thing and the beautiful thing about commercial real estate is that you have a direct impact on the lives of everybody that lives around that property, right? Depending on what kind of, what kind of project you do. Now, this being on a corner in the village, everybody that drives, so look, they come over here off of Old Hickory, they turn on the industrial drive and go right past this property to get into the neighborhood. So everybody that drives through into this neighborhood is going to be impacted by what we do here, which is a big deal. And so I, I went onto the Facebook page and I asked the neighborhood what they wanted to see so that I could include them in, in the decision. And we heard everything from like laser tag, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, this is, there's nothing surrounding this that would ever support laser tag. Um, all the way to a grocery store. Um, you know, the, the neighborhood really wanted some restaurants. They didn't have very many restaurants. Um, pharmacy came up a couple of times. So they, it gave me this great list of the kind of tenants to go out and target and data to then show to these prospects like, hey, this neighborhood 
wants this use, you should come up here. You're the only one serving it. So we ended up getting a pharmacy um, to go in the property. I'm actually going to screen share. Let's switch over to Google Street View so you guys can kind of see this. So that's the property. Let's move over right here. That's the wall I was talking about. Like they designed it so that you literally could not drive through that glass storefront. But that's it. I mean, that's that's the corner there. So we've got a, uh, a pharmacy there now. Um, there's a the little post office um, right over here is the neighborhood coffee shop. That's that mural you guys saw that I was standing in front of uh, right there. And then this is a barber shop that's been there for over 100 years, which I thought was crazy. But look at this. There's all of this new development going on over here. They're building all of these new homes in the area. So to me, it was kind of an a, a absolute no-brainer. The community center is right next door. It's very active. Anyway, kind of going on a bit of a tangent there. But when we, uh, when we bought the building, we started doing our takeover, right? So we get in, we start looking at, you know, what needs to be updated, what needs to be fixed. Well, the building was in pretty good shape, so we thought. About uh, the first time it rained, one of the offices, uh, you can't actually see them in either of these photos, but one of the, let me see if there's another shot. Um, okay, this is up. This is the uh, this is the mezzanine. This is one of the the only bathroom that's on that level. Okay, you can't see it, but one of the one of the offices completely flooded because it rained, and so we got a roofer out there. Well, there the roof there had been repaired by the seller before we put it under contract, and it did nothing. So we called them back out. They had it under warranty. They fixed it again. Next time it rained, did it again. Next time we got it fixed. Next time it rained, did it again. And so here I am spending money left and right trying to figure out how to fix this roof leak without replacing the entire property. Turns out we just should never have used that roofer. I got another roofer out there to come check it out, and uh, they ended up you know, fixing, patching that little area, and it, and it was done. We haven't had any issues since. And then my HVAC unit blew out. So, of course, I don't have any of this in the budget because we had inspected everything, and it came back normal, and the HVAC unit blows out. And so we're walking through the property one day. Keep in mind, I don't have any tenants in here now uh, yet because I bought it vacant. And we are trying to, uh, you know, get everything ready for lease up. And now I've got a building that's flooding and <laughs> the HVAC is not working. So I'm starting to get a little stressed out, right? Like this is my first project. I'm like, oh, man, did we make a mistake or what? So we end up having to we spent about twenty five thousand dollars on fixing the HVAC because there was so much uh, that needed to be done. Uh, it was probably, actually, it was probably 20,000, um, which is a lot. That is a lot of money on HVAC. We got the roof fixed. Luckily, um, I think the roofer ended up covering that, but I think we had to spend a little bit on labor to get stuff out there. But I mean, that's a big deal, right? Like that was the, what was one of the first lessons I learned. Make sure that you have contingency money going into a project like this. I didn't have enough contingency set aside for this kind of stuff, we ended up, uh, luckily we had our, a construction loan, uh, right, to do any tenant improvements to the property. And so that's what I ended up using to, to make those repairs. Uh, if I hadn't had that, I would have had to have come out of pocket for those expenses, which would have been devastating for me. I didn't have the money to even buy the property in the first place. So how would I come up with the money to, <laughs> to make those repairs? Um, so that, that construction loan ended up being a saving grace. Well, 
Uh, we started marketing the property and, uh, you know, the brokerage team found a pharmacy that wanted to open up in the neighborhood. So they actually ended up taking this space. They built it out. Um, it's, it's pretty beautiful now. Um, really cool to see. Um, you know, there's a little park over there across the street. But they, they, turned, uh, they turned the drive through back into a pharmacy drive through window, which is wonderful because the, uh, there's an older population in the neighborhood that's, that's aging, and they want to age in place, and they didn't have a pharmacy. They actually had to drive miles. Like, I think the closest pharmacy was a Walgreens over two miles away, which if you think about that, for, for elderly, like, that's kind of a long drive. So, um, and they, they opened right before COVID. So it was kind of perfect timing, right? I mean, they, it, with a drive through window, pharmacy down the street for most of these neighbors, it, good timing. Um, and then we ended up leasing the basement out to, to another tenant. Uh, the basement ended up having very tall ceilings. You can actually see it. Uh, we well, can't see it right here. Let me see. Let's pull up screen share here. So that's the basement. It's probably going to switch off here in a second. But the basement had, you know, 10-foot ceilings. Uh, it had a couple of restrooms. It had a storage closet. It had two separate entrances. So it was actually a, a not, it didn't have any windows, but it was actually a nice basement. Um, so we ended up uh, getting another tenant in there, which made it a great – we took a, a single-tenant property and turned it into two tenants. That was the next lesson I learned is well, how can we diversify our cash flow so that if one tenant leaves – uh, I don't have a 100% vacancy, right? Like that's what I talk about all the time about residential real estate investing and why I don't like it. I mean, buying single family homes doesn't make any sense because you're buying an asset that has a single source of income that if that person moves out, you've gone from 100% occupancy to 100% vacancy. And that's risky. Now, if, if one of these tenants moves out, I'll still have enough money coming in to cover my note, which is great. Right. And then I'll, uh, my profit lies in the other tenant. So we got to go get that figured out. Um, Andy, any questions on that so far, just as far as getting it leased up or going through that process? So, Tyler, when you were getting it leased up, what and you said you had engaged the community, you had you know put out feelers onto Facebook groups and local neighborhood groups. Were there any challenges? Were you having any pushback? People not wanting you to bring in certain things, or you were trying to bring a certain group and people said no. Did you have uh, any negative community reaction, or do you think it was all mostly positive? No, luckily it was all positive uh, because the neighborhood understood. Like the neighborhood wanted something there. They wanted anything that was going to serve the neighborhood. And you know, with the zoning that was in place, I could kind of go back and do any commercial use. Uh, within reason so you know like I couldn't put a car lot here obviously but you know I could put a grocery store I could put an office space I could put a bank so um, you know that gave me the flexibility to go out and find the tenants that I needed uh, which which was wonderful and you know we, we actually had a lot of community support going into it uh, we, we had an open house um, as well uh, and invited the neighborhood in so that everybody could see the space and uh, it was it was a good time. It was it was actually really fun, you know, engaging the community and having them come in and, and see the space, because I think that that really solidified one why we decided to invest in the neighborhood. I think it's very important to invest in neighborhoods that have uh, that, that are very community driven. Um, but two, it gave us more evidence and proof and anecdotes for incoming prospect uh, prospective tenants 
to tell them like, hey, this community is very active and here's how. And so we could go through all of those stories. So it's pretty good to see. Um, so I guess I'll tell you guys a little bit about how I underwrote this deal, which is a which is hilarious compared to what we do now as in terms of underwriting. Uh, you know, now we have all of these sophisticated spreadsheets and like I actually know what I'm doing with underwriting, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, when we did this, I literally ran back of napkin numbers and I said, that'll work. So <laughs> I looked at the square footage of the property. I looked at the, uh, the rents in, in the neighborhood and the surrounding areas and said, okay, well, I think I can get, you know, 10 or $12 a foot triple net for this space. Forgot what it was at the time. And uh, I think it's going to cost us X in tenant improvements to, to bring it up. So, you know, after we buy the property, we'll be all in at Y. So let's call it $700,000. Um, well, I ran it to show, like, I think it ended up being like a 12% cash on cash return uh, based on, it might've been 15%, uh, based on like hitting those numbers, getting at least, a, I, I gave myself two years for the lease up, which was actually great that I did that. Um, but like, we didn't have any sophisticated underwriting. I took all of that data that I pulled and I took that to my investors and I said, Hey guys, here's what stuff is renting for in the area. Here's what our mortgage payment will be. Here's how much it's going to cost to fix the building up. And here's how long it's going to take us to get tenants. And they gave me money. You know, it, we would th now keep in mind, this is a smaller project, right? This is a, uh, this was a $125,000 cash raise, right? So really one person could have written that check, but I feel like sometimes, uh, real estate investors, the general partners, the, the deal sponsors can overcomplicate a deal. Sometimes you don't have to have a, a, an absurd amount of information to give to investors. Sometimes it's literally, hey, here's what it'll rent for. Here's how we're going to find the tenants. Uh, and, and here's how much the property will cost. And people will say yes. So, you know, that was a pretty good lesson there is just, you know, building true relationships with your investors before going and asking them for money. Like I said, I knew those guys for a couple of years before I asked them for anything. And when I did, they were both like, yeah, finally, about time you did something, <laughs> which was great to hear, right? Instead of the like, oh, no, we're good, whatever, stop asking us for money because that's all you ever do. Um, so that, that, was, that was pretty nice. And Tyler, speaking of, you know, asking those guys for money, and you said that you had known them for several years. Now, I'm sure there are going to be people in the chat who are thinking or people watching who might be thinking, well, it's nice. It must be nice that you have friends who can write a $50,000 check, Tyler. Uh, you know, I don't know anyone who could write a $50,000 check or a $100,000 check. So how did you actually meet those guys and get in front of them the first time? Yeah, that's great. I actually, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm sure that I knew people that could write those checks growing up. Uh, but I decided to kind of go off and do my own thing, clearly. Uh, I, you know, I love kind of carving my own path. And so I did that from day one and both of those guys, I actually met through networking. One of them was in my BNI group. So business networking international, I joined that group for the cobble group, um, to network, to, to get leasing and sales leads, people who were looking to, um, to do, uh, you know, that needed office space or people that wanted to buy a, a, an investment property. And after being in that group for, I think it was over a year or two years, um, he had heard me talk, you know, every week 
on investing in commercial real estate. So when I finally kind of pitched it, he was like, yep, I'm all in. Uh, the other guy I met through in, uh, networking at the Real Estate Investors of Nashville, which I am now a board member for. Uh, he had been going there for a while. I'd been going there for a while. We actually sat together in a, in a class one day. Um, I forgot even what it was about, but he and I connected and uh, just started talking. And he was, uh, he was new to, to real estate. He wanted to get into residential flipping. Um, and, and I said, man, don't get into that. Get right into development. Here's how to do it. And so he skipped flipping. And the reason I say that, like when you get into residential homes, you have no idea what's going to be behind that wall when you tear it out uh, or what you'll find after you after you close. Yeah, Andy's been through that. We'll have to talk about that story sometime. It happens all the time, like just surprises come up. Right. And uh, when you're doing development, new construction, like there's not really any surprises. You're going in there and you're building it fresh. So, you know, if you miss something, of course, that'll be a surprise. But as long as you account for everything that needs to be accounted for, you can actually go through and, and it's relatively straightforward. Um, so I actually got him started in his development career and he became a successful developer. Uh, and two years later, you know, I called him and he said, absolutely, I'll throw some money in with you. So it, it worked out really well. I mean, that's it was I was taking the approach of, you know, give value to others before you expect to receive any value yourself. Yeah, Tyler, I mean, as you said, you were nursing those relationships for years, years, guys. And, and, you know, this is kind of what it takes, right? When you go out and people say, oh, you know, it's so hard to find people with money, you know, you can find them. You can sign up and go to the real estate investors of Nashville or real estate investors of Vancouver or New York City or LA or wherever you are, right? You can go up, sign up to the go to those groups just as much as Tyler or I can, right? But the the real work comes in making sure you engage with people and actually you know being genuine not just trying to be a leech and say i'm trying to because people say oh your network is your net worth and then they and you you, you you've met those guys right who who go out and they shake your hand and smile but you're you're always thinking in the back of your head it's like what does he want from me is is he trying yeah. to get something out of me everyone's met people like that. And so, you know, it's important to stress the importance of networking and, and building those relationships. So, you know, Tyler could end up finding his capital, but you want to be doing it in a way too. It's like, okay, I know this is important, but do it for building the relationships first, right? Do it for building the relationships first and then stuff like this and being able to raise money and be able to find deals and all this kind of stuff that's going to come later. Yeah, if you're if you're watching on YouTube, we've actually got a video on on how to raise capital for your deals, and that's one of the um, one of the tips that I give in that video is you're you're raising capital before you raise capital, right? You have to go out and build the relationships before you ever have a deal, because people don't just trust anybody with money, right? I mean, think about it. You know, now now we're we're doing these deals where we're raising fifty to a hundred thousand dollar minimums. Who is going to give somebody fifty to one hundred thousand dollars if they don't know them, they don't trust them? They, they, I mean, it's very tough. Uh, it's not impossible, right? People do it all. You know, people do it all the time if if they can, you know, get comfortable enough with the deal. But I didn't have to go through the paperwork process. I didn't have to go through some professional presentation. I had a, such a good relationship with these guys. They both said, "We trust you," and here's the money. Um, and it's gonna. I mean, you know. 
one of my investors, uh, just based on how the deal is structured, I think he's going to get about, I don't know, somewhere between a 15 and a 20% IRR um, on his investment on this. And which is, which is amazing. That's great. Cause this was always like my problem child. It took me forever to lease it up. Right. But we still leased it up in under two years. So I, I had plenty of, of runway. It was just frustrating trying to get it leased. Um, and then, you know, we had the roof leaks and then we had the HVAC, both of which, we, you know, we had to fix and address. And I just kept thinking, man, if we break even on this project, whatever, it will have been worth it. And, you know, thankfully, we're, we're actually going to end up making some money on it, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Jeff Spreen is jumping into the live chat. Hey, Tyler, love the videos. You fill a very unique niche that nobody is addressing. Keep it up. Might want to partner up on the triple nets. Appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks, man, uh, for the kind words. Uh, yeah, we, we, we love talking about commercial real estate. And one of my, one of my biggest frustrations when I first got into the business was nobody's really sharing, uh, you know, the ingredients. Nobody is, is pulling back the curtain and talking about how to go out and do these deals. And I feel like uh, it kind of stunted my growth in the business because I had to go out and really get uh, firsthand experience um, instead of being able to learn from others. So, you know, I think uh, I think it's pretty important to have. And, and I'm big on triple net investment investing. Um, if you guys haven't noticed from the, the triple net series that we've been doing on the on the YouTube channel, big on them. So, yeah, uh, if you guys are interested in triple net investments, check out our uh, deal of the week. We are actually that's a newsletter that we have going out. There should be a link in the uh, description below. But um, if not, just go to tylercobble.com slash newsletters. And uh, there is a investor sign up on that page uh, where you can get the deal of the week. We actually send out a fully underwritten triple net investment um, that we think is worth taking a look at. So uh, we'll be we'll be starting that up again here soon. We actually stopped because of COVID, but we're going to be reigniting that, which which I'm excited about. But yeah, jumping back into into old Hickory. So you know, this was uh, again, um, this was the the first project, and I think that it was I had to go through the trials and tribulations of of doing it because you know what? Now we're buying. I mean, this is two years later, and last week I bought a three hundred and thirty thousand square foot shopping center. So because I took the leap and bought a six thousand square foot office building. I finally had the, the guts to go out and start doing bigger projects, which, you know, we've always been capable of, right? I mean, we've been, I've been doing commercial real estate for going on eight years now. But, uh, you know, it just, it, man, getting that first deal is, is tough. And so that's, that's why I love talking about this property. It's, it's such a good case study on, um, you know, how to, how to buy commercial real estate with no money, which has been a very popular topic and how to buy your first commercial property and why you should go about doing that. Um, I, uh, I mean, that's, that's probably just about everything else that we needed to cover um, on 1100 Old Hickory. Were there any other thoughts that you had, Andy? No, Tyler, I, I really think you covered most of it. And just as a recap for people, right, the two things that he talked about, getting in with no money, right? And how did he do that first? He had a broker's license and he was able to use part of his commission as equity to bring to the table, right? That's something that anyone can do. Anyone can go get their broker's license. It's not that difficult. Uh, you know, you take a few tests, you pass, you know, you do this online course or in-person course or whatever. It, it doesn't take you that much time and you can go get that and then you can start be 
start to roll in 3% of a purchase price into your deals. That's going to be crazy, right? That That's going to allow you potentially to get into deals that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to. He got the rest of the equity from relationships that he had nurtured, right? That he had nurtured and known for a long amount of time because he was genuine and tried to provide value for people and wasn't just trying to be a leech. That's how he brought the rest of the equity capital. And finally, for his first deal, for his first deal, he really was just able to take the plunge, go out there, make that happen, deal with the emotions, deal with the ups and downs, and that's what set him on his journey to today and starting to build out a team of which, you know, I'm one of the early members on to start to take down huge projects, right? And you can be on that same trajectory as Tyler had done as well, right? It's not rocket science, right? His first underwriting was essentially literally back of napkin stuff, maybe yeah. a few boxes in Excel, and that was it, right? It is not rocket science. Real estate is not rocket science. You provide value for people. Find a good deal that you think you can fix up, make a little bit better, rent out at a good market rate, provide value to the community, get community buy-in is an important thing we've stressed here. You will do well, right? Yeah. You will do well. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, look, I dropped out of college and uh, now we're, we're building a pretty good-sized commercial real estate portfolio. So it's not rocket science. Anybody can do this. Um, so there you have it for our first case study on one of my projects. We've got another project that uh, I would love to dive in uh, on a case study with Andy on because uh, <laughs> he's, uh, <clears throat> he's been working on that one for a few weeks now. Uh, but it's, it's a, I call it the failed burr, the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat, because um, we actually ended up getting a, a, an offer to sell it uh, that I couldn't turn down. So we ended up taking it. Oh, it looks like we've got a couple of people jumping in the live chat. Um, to Gallup uh, asking, what criteria do you use for recruiting team members? That's a great question. You know, we're, I'm very picky about who we bring in because, you know, I've got – I've got nine employees now, and it's very much so a team environment. It's very much a family environment. I know everybody's, oh, like, we're a family here. I don't go around saying, hey, guys, we're a family. But, like, you know, we, we kind of, we're, we're, fa we're a family, right? Like, we're, we're hanging out around each other more than most of us are seeing. Um, you know, our families are significant others, right, because we're there for eight to ten hours a day. Um, so, one, you know, are you going to get along with us personally, right? Like, can you, can you join in on the banter? Can you make jokes? Are you having a good time? Cause like at the end of the day, like we, we, we don't take ourselves very seriously. We take what we do seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. We have a lot of fun. Um, uh, so, you know, that's important. I think having an always learning attitude, I mean, look, there's a lot of egos in commercial real estate and I am not interested in being a part of that whatsoever. I mean, I, I, it's, it's not entertaining to me. I think that uh, that's one of the worst parts about commercial real estate, honestly, is, is that people get so full of themselves and what they do. And to me, it's, it's like, man, just be humble and, and know that there's always something new that you can learn. I, I mean, I, I'm learning something every day. You know, like it, it's, it's crazy how much uh, there is in this business. If I was going around acting like I knew everything, I'd have a really tough time. Um, as far as like, 
honestly, criteria, I dropped out of college, so I don't require anybody to have a degree. I mean, everybody that works for me, except for like one person, I think has a degree. It's not a requirement. I honestly don't even look at resumes. Um, I, we take uh, the strengths finder test, uh, which is very interesting to me. It, it tells you what your strengths are. Um, and it, it's got these 34 different categories. Um, so I can actually see how somebody might handle a certain situation. And somebody with, with, with work ethic. I don't care if you know anything about commercial real estate, but if you're willing to work your tail off, that's all that matters. Because that's, that's, it's not the most uh, talented that wins. It's the hardest working that wins every day. So, I mean, that's probably a very roundabout way of, of answering that question. But that's, uh, that's my criteria when we're recruiting team members. Uh, Real Career Young Money jumped in as well. Tyler Phillip from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Love Chattanooga, by the way. Uh, that's my second favorite city behind Nashville. Uh, love what you're doing here. What's your opinion on warehouse space values in the future? Uh, Philip, that's a great question, man. I think warehousing space is going to continue to rise in value. Um, I'll, I'll let Andy definitely touch on this as well, because we've been talking a lot about cold storage and very like niche specific types of warehousing. But look, we're moving uh, even more. I mean, the pandemic accelerated our movement into a, uh, a a digital online ordering world, right? And so when you, when when more consumers are buying that way, they're not buying out of uh, you know these storefronts that basically were warehouses. Like if you've ever walked through a Target, that's a warehouse with nice lighting uh, and, and a good flooring. Um, to you know they they want it shipped to their door. So Amazon just announced another 1.1 million square feet of warehousing up in Clarksville, bringing a total of 8.9 million square feet in Middle Tennessee. So they're still building a massive amount of warehousing, which means there's still a massive amount of demand for it. And it's not being met. In fact, a lot of the warehousing is getting torn down despite all of this demand because the highest and best use for most of that real estate is not industrial, right? Uh, you look at all, so like downtown Nashville used to be basically uninhabited, which meant that there was a ton of industrial down there. It was very easy, you know, very accessible. You could jump right on the interstate. Well, the highest and best use for those sites now is office, retail, multifamily. Doesn't matter because it's it's in such a great location. Those, those developers are willing to pay more um, than a warehousing uh, type of developer or a warehouse tenant can, can afford to pay. So I think that uh, it de- now let uh, let me caveat this with it depends on where in the country you are. You're in Chattanooga. I think warehousing in Chattanooga is going to crush it. I think we'll absolutely crush it. I think manufacturing in Chattanooga will crush it. Um, you know, if you're a manufacturer and you want cheap warehousing that has incredible access, you're going to look at a Chattanooga. I mean, look, it, two hours from Chattanooga, you can ship to Nashville, you can ship to Atlanta, you can ship to I think Huntsville, maybe Birmingham. Um, and, and into Carolina, I mean, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of places that you can ship. And you can actually go by, by high interstate instead of flying. If you're manufacturing in Nashville, you've got to ship via, you know, plane um, to Atlanta unless you're willing to send somebody to drive four hours. So that's, that's kind of my take on warehousing. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's going to continue to go up. Andy, what are your thoughts? I totally agree, Tyler. And you know, really to answer questions like that, you have to think about not only what is happening right now, but what's going to be happening to the future. 
right? The question is right now, do you think, you know, we're going to have less online ordering five years from now versus today, right? I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. We're going to have way, way more online ordering five years from now versus today, especially when, you know, you guys think about the drone stuff that is going to be coming out, right? Uh, Amazon has FAA approved service for their drones. That kind of was news that leaked out. uh, And I think in the third or fourth quarter of last year, pretty soon people aren't even going to be driving the trucks to your house. They're going to be just drone flying them to your house. And you're going to be able to get your packages in a few hours, max, you know, this warehousing space is going to be more and more and more important. People are going to get more and more stuff from these locations. And as just as Tyler said, the more central location is, the better. And we're going to see, too, perhaps with a lot of these uh, retail centers going down, a lot of retail centers that are p- potentially being used as partial warehousing, partial industrial space, kind of more flex space than they traditionally are, just as Tyler indicated, you know, a target you can fit a lot of stuff in a target, right? It's just not currently set up to necessarily be a distribution hub, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be retrofitted to be a distribution hub. And those are the types of, if you have the vision for the future, right? To take advantage of the fact that people are like, oh, retail is dying. Oh, office is dying. Well, what if I converted this into a little neighborhood local place to send out and have package and logistics distribution, right? or monetized in some sort of other way, right? These are the types of things that, you know, innovative investors can really start to take advantage of during um, this perceived crisis that we're having in commercial real estate right now. Tyler, I don't know if it's just me who can't hear you. I was muted. Thank you. There you go. Uh, Philip, we're going to be in Chattanooga on the 14th, by the way. So shoot me a DM to my uh, Instagram handle right there. Um, If you want to come check out the property, we bought a tower out there. Uh, Be happy to, to, you know, get to know you and and show you around. Um, It's at commercial in Nashville for everybody listening on the podcast. Um, Oh, cool. He's jumping back in with a follow-up question. Let's see here. I'm familiar with small multifamily deals such as a duplex, quadplex, et cetera. What are the main differences in cap rates between warehouse space versus small multifamily? Again, in Chattanooga. Well, um, I would imagine that, uh, gosh, they're not going to be very different just considering the, de- the high demand that we've seen for warehouse space in the last three to five years. You know, I would say uh, historically multifamily has traded at a lower cap rate than warehousing has. But with all of these investors moving into warehousing because of the stability that it now provides, the, and, and also multifamily got so low that it just became ridiculous, um, that cap rates have gotten compressed in warehousing as well. So, you know, I would say, I mean, but what is that? Is that five BIPs? Is it 15 BIPs? I don't know, but it's not going to be a huge difference. It's all going to come down to the quality, right? So, I mean, a, a fourplex is probably going to trade for a little bit lower of a cap rate than a, than a single tenant, 5,000 square foot warehouse. Um, you know, go ahead, Andy. Yeah. And part of the reason too, uh, Philip, 
that those might be trading at different rates is that you kind of don't value your duplex, quadplex, et cetera, on cap rates. You value them still on residential versions of comps, right? How much does a duplex sell for? Oh, 150 a door here in East Nashville. Okay, that's what they tend to trade for. I should be looking to sell my duplex for 150 a door. Whether you're making $10,000 a month or $5 a month, it's going to sell for the same thing. So in terms of getting in there and buying it that way, you're going to be valuing those differently. And I just bought a duplex in close to um, West Trinity Lane here in Nashville, and I'm set to buy essentially a quadplex up in Madison. The second thing you want to be considering, Philip, is that versus commercial real estate versus residential real estate, because up to quadplex is still residential real estate. The reason the cap rates are going to be lower, too, if you wanted to look at it a cap rate scenario, is that you have different financing. You can get residential loans on a quadplex or a duplex, and your rates are going to be way cheaper, right? So cap rates really are kind of really at the end of the day, a spread over your financing rate is really what the cap rates end up being kind of give or take at the end of the day. And when you have quote unquote cap rates for a residential deal, you're going to be able to get, you know, a 30 year fixed loan at a 3% interest rate for that, for a quadplex when you can't get anything, you know, it's probably going to be at least 3.5 or maybe 4% for a 20 year loan for a, a warehouse space, right? So it's just really on different levels of financing there when you're looking at that. Yeah, that's the, that's the other side of the coin that you have to really pay attention to, right? It's like, what's, what's going to get you the best financing terms? Um, you know, smaller warehouse space is probably not going to do as well as multifamily. I mean, as, as Andy is saying, you could probably get better terms. Um, it just, it totally depends on, on the, the, the global picture um, for that project. So, all right, well, that is everything that we have for you guys today um, on that case study. Hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, thank you for joining us live and asking your questions. Really enjoyed that. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe for more commercial real estate content. Uh, if you were listening on the podcast, please rate and review so that we can, can continue bringing this content to others uh, just like you that are looking to learn about commercial real estate. And we will see you guys next week.